How many of you recognize that clip? Yeah, we got a few sinners here. <laughs> it's from a great movie, and yes, I did have to do some creative video editing to take out all the cuss words, but you still get the point. <laughs> and there's something that happens um, for long-term inmates. They said they talk about this guy who'd been in the prison for 50 years. And institutionalization, or what we call institutional syndrome, is what happens when someone who's been in prison for a long time is released. And then they don't really know how to live on the outside. They're so used to everything that has happened for all their life, all the routine and all of the instruction. Now they're on the outside and they don't really know how to be free. And so we're starting a new series this morning in the book of Galatians. We'll start in Galatians chapter 1. If you have your Bible, feel free to turn there, either in paper or on your portable device. And we'll be starting in chapter 1, verse 1. And the reason Paul is writing this letter to the church in Galatia is for a similar reason. It's because they have been institutionalized. It is because a lot of these new believers had formerly been Jews, and they had been raised in the Jewish cultures and customs, and they had been raised under the Jewish law and under the ceremonial law and under the rule of circumcision. And now that they've been set free, they don't know how to live free. And so Paul is going back and saying, okay, guys, <laughs> I see what you're doing here. They're, they were not only teaching and believing themselves, beginning to add to Jesus and the gospel, these old way of life, but now they're beginning to t- teach others, Gentile believers. Now you need to adhere to these rules, too, to truly please God. And so we pick this up in Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle, you could just as well start off saying, from Paul, to you. <laughs> but it starts out, it says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me. So that's the from, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then Paul seems to cause whiplash here because he changes so quickly from glory and glory, amen, to I am astonished. (laughs) It could just as well say there, I am, whoa, I don't even know how to respond, you know. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you previously, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say it again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse, which is another way of saying let them be religiously excommunicated. And so Paul is saying, (laughs) without batting around the bush, he's saying, Hold up. The gospel that we preached to you was about Jesus. But now you're making it about Jesus and something else. And he's saying we need to stop this in his tracks because the gospel is another word for what? Good news. And a gospel that isn't about Jesus and it's about adding things on that we have to check off our list to do's, that's not really good news. Craig Rochelle is a pastor of a, a church in Oklahoma City wrote a book called It, and he tells a story in there. Um, Because the Jews were teaching Jesus and, but I think we live our lives a lot of the time the same way. And he tells a story, and this is what it says. What I saw years ago still breaks my heart. 
I was preaching for a small church. The volunteer receptionist told me bluntly, young man, (laughs) I don't know why that's what a volunteer receptionist sounds like in my head. Um, (laughs) She says, young man, you'd better do a good job preaching because we have a visitor coming to church. Evidently, that was unusual. She explained how a lady had just called and asked for directions to the church. Then she said, our church has been declining for several years, and we need members to help pay the bills. Before the service started, I stood outside with a church elder greeting people, and that's when I saw the visitor. I knew this lady wasn't a member of the church because, well, she didn't look like anyone else there. All the members were dressed in nice suits and pretty dresses, and this young lady looked like she slept in what she was wearing. It wasn't that she didn't care for herself, it was just obvious that she'd had a tough life. As she slowly approached the church, her eyes and body language communicated she was nervous and intimidated. I admired her courage to visit a new church all by herself. What had triggered her to come? Had she been abused? Was she at the end of her rope and in desperate need of Christ and his people? As she approached the door, the elder stepped in front of the young lady and blocked her path into the sanctuary. Miss... The man said in an intimidating tone, at our church, we wear our best for God. My jaw dropped in shock. No, you didn't just say that to her. But unfortunately, he had. And this young woman's eyes filled with tears as she dashed to her car to make her getaway. I don't know what your Sunday mornings are like. My guess is if you have young kids in the house, it's quite an event. Um, I remember growing up, it was always a big ordeal to get your kids bathed, fed, and then probably rebathed because they got their breakfast all over them. And I remember one Sunday morning, there was an argument arose between my mom and my sister. And I did ask their permission if I could share the story. So if I say it wrong, just ask one of them and they can correct it later. Um, but there was an argument that arose revolving around a dress. And it wasn't, is the dress blue or is it black and white or is it gold? So last year. (laughs) I couldn't think of a way to work in Yanni. (laughs) Um, But the argument was whether she should wear it or not to church. My mom wanted to wear a dress because you look cute in a dress and you should wear a dress to church. And I was like, I don't want to wear a dress to church. Mom said, you're going to wear a dress to church. She said, oh, no, I'm not. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, no, I'm not. Has anyone ever had anything like this on a Sunday morning? Probably just us. Um... But it, it rose to a point where Mel kind of stopped. She says, Mom, I feel like the dress is more important to you than I am. Which my mom responded. I've always loved this about her. She's just quick to admit, I think, when she realizes she's wrong. She says, you're absolutely right. In this moment, I've made the dress more important to me than you. From now on, dear, you can wear whatever you like to church from now on. As long as it's decent, you can wear whatever you like to church. I don't know whose idea it was who started the idea that we should dress up to church? And I know nowadays it's a lot more casual, and you probably wouldn't think twice walking in here whether someone was wearing shorts or or a hat backwards on stage or whatever the case is. Um, But there's a lot of traditions that have kind of been, especially if you're in the greater generations, you may have been present with a lot of these traditions that were held over from World War II era and from kind of the reinvention and industrialization of the U.S. And a lot of that, if you've been active in the military... I mean, there's codes of conduct. That if you're wearing a cap when you step inside a building, you remove it. 
I don't know who that shows respect for, but it's in the code of conduct, so you do it. The same as we, had a we have a code of conduct for our national flag, and there's reasons that when the national anthem is played, that you remove your headdress and you place your hand over your heart. Out of respect for our country, maybe it's out of respect for those who've gone before us. And so we have these traditions that I think have kind of seeped their way into church. And not that it's wrong. And if you like to dress up, like, dress up, that's cool. But at the same time, we don't bring our best to God. Because we read in Isaiah 64, or is it Isaiah? Where is it? Allie? Line? Just kidding. <laughs> I lost it. Oh, that's in another part of the message. You don't even know. Yeah, it's Isaiah 64. <laughs> Verse 6, where that our greatest, most pure acts of righteousness are still considered filthy rags compared to the righteousness of God. And we see elsewhere where, where Jesus doesn't, he engages us where we are. Look at the woman at the well in John chapter 4. There's a reason she was coming to the well in a time of day when no one else was at the well. She wanted to sneak in and sneak out without anyone seeing her. And then in John chapter 8, there's the woman who's straight out caught in the act of adultery, and she's brought before Jesus. The Pharisees wanted to see if Jesus would condemn her as the law did. And he met her where she was with the incredible call to go and leave your life of sin. He met her where she was. He loved her exactly how she was, probably naked, standing there, humiliated. And yet, he loved her too much to let her live that way. He wanted her to be free and to know how to live free. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. You've probably read this before, but it just simply says that man or people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So it's kind of two sides of a coin. And, you know, I, I don't know if God really cares how you dress. Maybe there's an element of decency that's involved to some extent, but I never see Jesus concerned about what people were wearing. Other than... Possibly the one time that we see where he talked to the Pharisees. And he actually called them out because the, the Pharisees looked like they had it all together. And maybe it's some of what they were wearing. Maybe it's some of what they were doing. But he actually called them whitewashed tombs in Matthew chapter 23. Because it says, you look shiny, you look beautiful on the outside. But inside, you're full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. And I wonder... I don't know. Can you imagine what that might have looked like? I don't know what the designers were back then. But I imagine the Pharisees probably wore designer robes. <laughs> and maybe Jesus was like, yo, was that Vera Wang? <laughs> I don't know why Jesus talks like he's straight out of Compton suddenly. But, <laughs> you know, is that Versace? What is that? Who wore it best? This Pharisee or this Pharisee? I don't know. We can, we can look at them both at the same time because they're both standing up on the temple wall holding their arms out. It's easy to hide. And he says, yeah, you look beautiful on the outside, but inside, you're filthy. You're dirty. You're filled with death and decay. And yes, this t-shirt is authentically dirty. I didn't just mess it up for an illustration. <laughs> this is... <laughs> Those of you who've been to my house, you know that my backyard is filled with old broken down trucks. <laughs> Four of them at the moment. Two of them don't have engines. One of them doesn't have a body. Um, and so this is legit dirty from like crawling under my truck this week and working on it. It's my backyard. I have, don't have much of a backyard, much of a front yard. I got a little bit of each. 
Not only the backyard's big enough to hold four trucks, um, but it also holds dirt and gravel back there. And I've got these big cinder block tall walls that hide everything so the neighbors don't have to see how dirty it is back there. But in my front yard, my front yard looks pretty good. You saw it this morning, right? Yeah, in my front yard, I got green grass. I've got shade trees. I have a citrus tree. Got my American flag popped out front. And I usually do a pretty good job of keeping my front yard tidy. Why? Because that's the part that everybody sees. That's the part I want to be a good neighbor. I want my neighbors to think I'm good. <laughs> and so <laughs> that I'm not just some, you know, schmuck that doesn't know how to cut his grass or whatever. And we, we don't have an HOA, so I don't have to, but I want to. I put it forth, and I've actually had neighbors tell me before. They've approached me, several neighbors over the years. They've been like, man, you have the best lawn on the street. Ooh, that feels good. <laughs> hold on, you missed the spot right here, you know? It's like, it's not me, it's him. All glory be to God, Tebow, <laughs> I don't know. And, you know, but it feels good. People say, wow, your house looks great, you're really good. And I said, thanks, I'm no match for Kent Seacat. The man can grow grass out of a rock, but I'm, I still do pretty good, comparatively, for my street that has no homeowners association. <laughs> but my backyard, that's another story. My neighbors probably wouldn't say the same thing if they were reversed. You know, let's say, what is that garbage? And, and yeah, maybe to some people it looks like garbage and piles of rusty metal back there. But to me, they look like classics. They look like potential. They look like if I'm willing to get a little dirty and put in some work, that they could be made and remade into this beautiful classic, restored into the image of what they originally meant to be. And I wonder if Jesus often wore dirty clothes don't know exactly, but we do know that he was a carpenter by trade. And my dad, growing up in construction, I, I can testify that carpentry is not necessarily a clean desk job, right? You're outside working in the sun, swinging a hammer, you're sweaty, you got sawdust all stuck up and sap in your arm hair. In my dad's case, there was often blood involved somewhere. <laughs> it's not a clean job. Jesus may have had dirty clothes, <laughs> but maybe what he wore did say a lot about him. We know Jesus walked a lot. Most of the roads back then, even the floors of the homes were dirt. And that's why it was so crazy that this teacher, this rabbi, would kneel down on the ground and wash the feet of his disciples. Because first of all, his disciples were teenage boys. Who wants to be anywhere near a teenage boy's feet after they've been walking around in leather sandals for three days? Yeah, and not only the sweat, but there's the dirt and the mud and the camel droppings. Or whatever else they walked through. And Jesus was down there exchanging their filth for his cleanliness and his purity. What a great picture. I think Jesus may have been dirty because he was on the ground a lot. Not just then. But we see the woman in John chapter 8. And he's down writing in the sand. And then again we see the blind man that Jesus was knelt down. And he's spitting in the dirt and making mud in his hands and rubbing it on this guy's face. He probably was dirty. But here's the reason I think that he may have had dirty clothes the most. Because he called the little children to come unto himself. (laughs) And you know what sticky, slimy messes they are. (laughs) Amen. Says, my niece, one of whom, when she was younger, I used to think it was so sweet. I thought they were cuddling with me and getting all close. Until I get up and, what is this? They're rubbing their nose and their mouth all over. And how many moms can testify that you got to go do a quick look in a 360 mirror before you leave the house to see if you grew anything new before you leave? But <laughs> so I think Jesus may have wore dirty clothes, but I think maybe what he wore 
how he looked maybe spoke a lot to the potential that he saw in others. He saw them as classics that could be restored into the image of God. So why were the Pharisees so clean cut? The Pharisees get a bad rap, and rightfully so, but at the same time, when I look, if I had been alive at the same time as Jesus, that's probably the group I would have been a part of, because this was a group that was honestly trying to do their best for God. They're trying to put their best foot forward, and according to the law that they'd been given at that time, and they were very leery of some new prophet, new Messiah claiming that he's a person of God. Imagine today if someone popped on the TV and started claiming that they were the son of God. We'd be like, I'm going to see how this plays out. You know, and so they're constantly trying to, to trip him up, to disqualify him. And I think I would have been the same way. But what the Pharisees missed is that the love of God goes beyond the law of God. And where they were trying to use all of these hundreds of Old Testament laws to somehow, by keeping themselves ceremonially clean, by keeping themselves um, pure before God, and by portraying these certain acts and prayers and things is that they could somehow like earn God's pleasure in them. And Jesus comes to turn that upside down when he says, no, there's not one who does good, not even one. And so I think we often want Jesus and other things. And maybe we want Jesus and good health. Maybe we want Jesus and that relationship or that career. Maybe we want Jesus and the approval of others. Maybe we want Jesus and to win the lottery. Because, Lord, I could tithe on the winnings, and that would be a blessing to the kingdom and move forward the gospel. Hand me another scratcher. Glory be to God. No. But I mean, really, we make it about things. It's like, okay, yeah, Jesus, you're enough. Oh, but I like that too. But here's the thing. Jesus is all you need. Jesus is all you need. And if you have Jesus, you have everything. As I mentioned earlier from Ephesians 1.3, the word tells us that we have already received every spiritual blessing in the person of Christ Jesus. We have all that we need. And what Paul's saying is any gospel other than that is not good news. So what is the gospel? What is the good news? Paul lined this out for us, fortunately, in those first five verses. He did a pretty good job. Um, the good news shows us, first of all, who we are. The good news shows us that we are helpless and lost. In verse 4, we see um, that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us. Okay, other founders of other religions came to teach not to rescue. And how many times, I bet if you were to ask the average Christian on the street, so, so what does being a Christian mean? You might hear something along the lines of, well, I believe that being a Christian is, is trying to, to live out the teachings and the example of Christ, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but Paul doesn't mention anything about Jesus being a teacher here. He mentions Jesus came to save. He came to rescue us. He didn't came to give us a second chance Try to do better next time. If you get enough second chances, then maybe you'll somehow gain enough knowledge. You'll finally figure this thing out, and then you can live the Christian life. No. He says, there's no chance, Bubba. <laughs> he says, you're drowning in your sin. You're helpless. Joel, 
Imagine Joel was drowning and flailing his arms about and he didn't know how to swim. It's my younger brother. I maybe have thought about this a few times before, but, <laughs> but imagine Joel's flailing his arms and he's just saying, help! And I'm thinking like, okay, let's see. Give a man a fish, he eats for a day, teach a man to fish. You know, and so I'm thinking like, okay, what he doesn't really need is to be rescued. I think I'm just gonna, I'm gonna start teaching him how to swim. Well, he's going underwater, so he doesn't hear, he's like, help! And I start talking, he just hears, <laughs> and it's like, okay. In that moment, he doesn't need to be thrown an instruction manual. He needs to be thrown a rope. Because he's helpless in that moment, and that's what we were before the action of Christ. Helpless and lost, unable to do for ourselves what we needed, unable to save ourselves. The second thing the good news shows us, again, in chapter 4, is what Jesus did. Sorry, verse 4, chapter 1, is what Jesus did. Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us. And this is a phrase we use called substitutionary sacrifice. So that word for there, it could mean on behalf of or in place of. He took our place. He knew that we were helpless and lost and had no shot. And he took our place. There's a little skinny kid by the name of Dawson Trotman, born in Bisbee, Arizona, went on to found an incredible Christian organization called the Navigators. He's a man which was very close with Billy Graham, and Billy Graham said about Doss that he had never met anyone who had personally affected so many lives for the kingdom. And Doss died in 1956 out on a lake rescuing a girl who was drowning. And he substituted his life for hers. And that's what Jesus did for us. If you were the only one, that would have been Jesus. So Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. In fact, he did all we needed to do, but we're unable to do for ourselves. Then the gospel shows us what the Father did. That God accepted the work of Christ on our behalf by raising him from the dead, verse 1, and by giving us the grace and peace, verse 3, that Christ won and achieved for us. We read elsewhere that though we were once objects of wrath, we are now heirs to the throne because of what God's acceptance of what Jesus did on the cross. And then the good news tells us why God did it. And it's because of love. Verse 4 Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. I don't know if anyone has ever witnessed evil in our present age, but it's out there. You turn on the news, it doesn't take long to see it. But it doesn't mean to rescue us from, it's not like Jesus came to take us out of the world, but he came to save us in the world. And I think a lot of times we look at, well, what is the gospel? Well, it means that if you accept Christ, then when you die, however long down the road that is, then you get to go to heaven. And, okay, that may be part of salvation, but there's also this whole element. I'm amazed. When they first started evangelizing in Africa, and years and years and decades ago, I mean, it was crazy. They tried using these scare tactics of, like, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? And they'd describe what hell is like, and, and in their culture, they were like, well, that basically sounds like what we live in anyway, so what's the difference if we don't accept Jesus? You know? And so, well, because God didn't only come to save us for the future. He came to save us from our sin now and from the misery 
of the consequences of that sin. Well, who has sinned? All. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, is sin really that big a deal? Well, Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is death. And it's not always a physical death, although it does seem funny that in the Garden of Eden, there was no death in the world until sin entered the world. And I got conspiracy theories about other stuff, but we'll leave that for another time. Um, But, you know what? Sin earns you death. What you invest in sin, you yield inconsequential dividends. (laughs) I just made that up. I don't know if it even makes sense. But, um, yeah. So the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And we see in verse 4, that it was according to the will of our God and Father. And what is the will of our God and Father? Second Peter 3, 9 says that God wills that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. There's a story that takes place in the Bible in Luke chapter 15. And in verse 1, it says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You can almost hear the disgust. Because why? Because man looks at the outward appearance. They see Jesus is becoming ceremonially unclean by hanging out with these people. But verse 3, then Jesus told him this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And I love that picture finding the lost sheep and joyfully putting it on his shoulders. Why does he pick it up? Why doesn't he just use his staff and whack the thing on the backside? I think a lot of times as Christians, we feel like God is constantly course correcting us and whacking us with sticks. Be like, no, you're getting a little off track there. No, you're getting off track. I'm keeping records of everything you're doing right and wrong, and that's wrong, so get back on track. And that's not what the picture shows here. The picture shows a sheep who, for whatever reason, evidently couldn't even carry his own body weight. There was nothing the sheep could do under his own strength to make it back to the rest of the flock. Maybe he broke a leg, falling down some dangerous trail. Maybe he had just run so hard, so fast, so long that he was completely exhausted and didn't have anything left to come back with. And Jesus joyfully puts the sheep on his shoulders and carries it home. And when he gets home, verse 6, he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. That song that we just sang, I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it, but you gave yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And maybe that word reckless doesn't have enough clarification for itself, so I'd like you to to watch this video clip by the author as he explains what he meant by this phrase, reckless love. So I think maybe God's love is reckless. It's at least foolish if you're judging by the world's standards. That he should substitute himself for me. In order that we might live And this morning, I wonder if there's anyone in here 
maybe you've heard some other gospel, a gospel other than this. Maybe you've been shouted out from the street corners. If that's you this morning, in a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer, and I would encourage you to pray after me so that you may be set free. Free from the weight of sin in this life. It's not just about getting your ticket punched to heaven. It's about freedom in this life. Freedom from sin and the misery of its consequences. And maybe this morning, maybe you were once part of the flock. I'm not sure how you ended in here, but maybe you were exposed to Sunday school or church as a kid. And somewhere along the way, something just rubbed you wrong. You said, this doesn't sound... And maybe it was a gospel other than this. So maybe you invested in sin, looking for something to please you. And maybe this morning, you don't even know how you ended up there, but you just feel like you're so far away from God. You ran so hard and so fast, and all you need to do is maybe look up to see the shepherd standing over you joyfully ready to lift you on his shoulders. And maybe this morning you've been walking with God for many years. And yet somehow you've been living a gospel that's something other than Jesus. I'm just going to pray a simple prayer. And I encourage all of us in the room just repeat it after me, wherever you fall in there. And, and for those who are, maybe just use it as a reaffirmation of what God has done for you because of his love. Repeat after me, Lord Jesus, I know that I have sinned and I cannot save myself. No longer will I close the door when I hear you knocking. By faith, I receive your gift of salvation. I am ready to trust you as my Lord and Savior. I believe you are the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. Thank you for bearing my sins and giving me the gift of eternal life. I believe your words are true. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my savior. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, or maybe for the second, third, fourth, fifth time, welcome home. There's one other side of the coin. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, we see that God doesn't really care about the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's what he's after. But on the other side, man looks at the outward appearance. So what does that mean for us? I don't think it matters necessarily what you wear, what your job is, as much as let people see Jesus in you. We skip to the end of 
Galatians chapter 1, the last couple verses, Paul is talking about the testimony to who he is. And he says in this former way in verse 23, they only heard the report that the man who formerly persecuted us, being Paul or Saul, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Verse 24, and they praised God because of me. And I guess the question then for the rest of us, who is praising God because of you? Who, by watching your life, brings glory to God because if it weren't for so-and-so, I never would have known Jesus. I never would have known hope. If it weren't for so-and-so, my bills may have gone unpaid. But who is looking at your life and praising God because of it? Curry R. Blake says this, if your gospel isn't touching others, it hasn't touched you. So this morning as we prepare for communion and and one other instruction I'd like to get, if you did say that prayer for the first time a moment ago or you're rededicating your life, you've been set free, but now you need to know how to live free. Otherwise you'll find yourself eventually thinking, well, maybe it wasn't so bad in prison. At least I had the three squares. At least it was familiar. You need to know how to live free and that's done by digging into the word of God. So I encourage you to get a Bible. If you don't have one, I've got some up here and some at the info desk. Please take one as a free gift. And if you don't know where to start reading, I would encourage you the Gospel of John. There's a little study guide about John in here too because it talks so much about the character and the person of Jesus. But now that you've been set free, you need to know how to live free. So as we prepare for communion, sharing in the Lord's Supper, sharing in his substitutionary sacrifice for us. As Pastor Kurt comes, um, reflect on these things. Maybe use it as a time for searching your own heart. And with me if you would, please. If you can. As we continue in, in this time of worship this morning, I just am so thankful to be here, thankful to be a part of a, a community that has so many stories that, that tie us together, that scarlet thread that keeps us tied together, even though they're different, that scarlet thread of Christ's blood and the good news. You know, as I was sitting here this morning, because we come to a time like this, Jesus said, you do this in remembrance of me. But I hope we also come this morning in that remembrance of what it was like for many of you. If you were like me, I remember clearly when I didn't have Christ in my life. And just remembering that reckless love and where he came to, what he had to do. I took him to places he shouldn't have had to go to find me. Just tell you. But he chased me down. He chased me down. This time of communion, just logistically, let me say this. Uh, if you would, if you don't mind coming down, if you're on this side, to come down these aisle, this aisle here. And you'll come and you'll take communion. And same on this side over here, come down the middle aisle, or the far aisle. Come down and return back to your seat down the middle here and just take the bread, dip it in the juice, and you can partake of it here or take it back to your seat. But this is a special time for us.
do this together, with all the stories, everything coming together around the table. Let me pray for us as we prepare for this time. And Lord, we just come before you this morning. Knowing that the good news is Josiah said, it's not just that we're saved and we get to go to heaven, which that's great news. But right now, today, we can be set free. And Lord, that picture as Josiah was painting it is setting in a jail cell, as we've many heard before. And someone unlocks the door, opens it, swings it open. And for whatever reason, we refuse to walk out. Lord, help us to know how to live free now. Because you have set us free. We thank you for this time now as we come around the table, Lord. As a family. As you did with your disciples. As you broke the bread and as you gave the example of the cup and, and your blood. We come today as a broken as a broken group, but thankful that you are the God who came to reconcile, you came to redeem, you came to put it all back together again. And we just thank you for times like this. And Lord, thank you again for your reckless love. And we just pray that we're the kind of people that live that way as an example of who our God is. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You come as you feel led this morning. Thank you. Thank you.